We're going to finish chapter, Genesis chapter 3 this week. So we're going to start there. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you to worship you. We thank you for the singing that we've been able to do. We ask you to guide and lead as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and also take of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And he drove out man, and he placed him placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep away to the tree of life. We're looking at this, and last week we talked about the name of God, Yahweh, his, his main name that uh, he's known by, means existing one. He is not outside of time. It says the Lord God here, and this word for God is an interesting word in the Hebrew because it's Elohim, and it's a plural word for a singular God, <laughs> which means that we're going to talk a little bit about the Trinity today, all right, because the Trinity is one of those things that's hard to understand, and it is a Christian doctrine. There are people that tell us that the Trinity is not a valid doctrine, but it's taught all through Scripture. It is taught, even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, it means uh, three unified. So it's, it's in there, and we see the picture of the Trinity in the Bible all over the place. And we see it all through Genesis chapter 1 and through 2. The word for God is Elohim. And we started right in the very first thing, let us create man in our image. It's God talking to himself with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are three in one. And we're going to look at the Trinity a little bit. And what I tell everybody is, when we get done talking about the Trinity, you won't understand the Trinity much better than you did before. You may understand more about it. But we will, the Trinity is an idea that we can't fully understand because it is beyond our comprehension. Now, some people get bothered by the idea that there are things in the Bible beyond our comprehension. I am very comforted by the fact that there are things in the Bible beyond our comprehension because our God is so great that if he was totally comprehensible, he would not be God. If I could understand everything there was to know about God and know why he does everything he does and why he is who he is, then I would be God and he would not be God, and that's never going to be the fact. So for us, we always want to be able to say there are going to be things in the Bible that we're going to have a hard time understanding. You know, and the world uses this against us. Well, you guys don't understand this Trinity thing. It can't be true. You don't understand why, you know, you can't explain why there's fear and pain on this world. Well, yes, we can. Man fell. Man brought sin into the world, and God allowed our free will to bring that pain into this world because he wanted us to choose. And this is hard. You know, it is hard to figure why do people suffer. God has a plan for it. And if you live long enough, usually you see the plan in your life why you suffer. And if you don't, you'll see it when you get to heaven. But you know, the greatest thing about it is sometimes when we suffer, we're able to turn to God and say, God, I want to, I want to lift you up in front of people. Have you ever, I have a friend uh, who back a while ago, he had breast cancer and he was in the hospital and he was talking about how he had nurses taking care of him for three hours, several times a week, and he got to witness to them. And they couldn't leave because their job was to make sure that he was getting his medicine. <laughs> you know, kind of reminded me of Paul. 
chained to two, chained to two guards all day long who had to listen to everything he said about Jesus. <laughs> you know, and he took advantage of it. I'm sure he went further into salvation than he would have normally did with the people he was talking to because he had two guards chained to them that needed to hear the gospel message. How do we react when things are in bad shape? Do we have a pity party? Or do we say, God, thank you, let's, let's keep trying to lift you up? Am I saying it's easy to do that? No. But if it's our heart's desire, we'll be able to do that. What is the Trinity as we look at the Trinity? Is one of those interesting things. In Deuteronomy 6.4, we hear the statement that the Jews will quote all the time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And it's kind of interesting because it is Yahweh Elohim, one, Elo, one Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, the existing one. Our God, Elohim, multiple, is one. Now, how does this work? How can we even begin to understand this? A lot of people will try to tell us, you know, that, well, you Christians, you have three gods. You have Jesus, you have the Spirit, and you have and the God the Father. No, we have one God. Three in one. A lot of people will try to think, of, well, you know, it's one time. The God of the Father was at the beginning where he has all the laws, and then he sent Jesus who paid the price, and then he came as the Holy Spirit. No, it's not three gods. It's not God in three different modes. It is three different essences. How do we know this? Because when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descended down as a dove, and the Father spoke, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased from heaven. All three people were there together enjoying the baptism of Jesus. Jesus. So we see the three all at once. At the Mount of Transfiguration, they receive the Spirit coming down, the glorified God and God the Father speaking. We see it in Genesis where it says, let us make man in our own image. We see it in this verse that says, man has become like us, knowing good and evil, which we'll talk about a little in a little bit. The Trinity is three very separate people that are joined together so completely that they are one. Now we have all kinds of imperfect pictures of this in our, in our world. We see the Trinity everywhere we look. The very atom is made of three parts. The proton, the neutron, and the electron. And you know that has to be held together by God because it can't stand, it can't be in existence the way the laws of science are understood. We know that we have a family, a husband, a wife, and the children. And then we have one family. Now we can break those families up where we can't break God up. But you know, so we say we have imperfect pictures. We look at an egg which has a shell, a, a white, and a yolk. It's a great picture until you break it <laughs> and separate it. You cannot put it back together. All right? God could be three distinct individuals and still always be one. All right? So we have these pictures that are hard for us to understand. The picture of marriage was to be where we take two individual people and join them together and they become one. Now we don't practice it very well. <laughs> But the picture is supposed to be that picture of the unity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that are distinct yet one. And we look at this and the, the, 
people will tell you, well, Trinity is a new doctrine. I don't know if you've ever heard people tell you that this idea of the Trinity is a new doctrine. Well, we just quoted a whole bunch, the baptism of Jesus, Mount Transfiguration. If that's not enough for you, we can look at uh, Matthew uh, 28, 18 through 20, which is the Great Commission. It says, go and teach people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was spoken by Jesus before he was lifted up from this world for his last time. That's pretty darn close to his start of the church. Matter of fact, that's before the start of the church by about 10 days because he spent 40 days walking with the people. So we see this going on. Um, Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 14 ends, with his, ends his letter with the salutation that God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Peter, it starts his letter in 1, 2, 1 Peter 1, 2 with that same statement. The Father who is the, 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 the Father who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is there and we need to be able to understand the, the power of this. When the for creation, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were in perfect unity together. They did not need to create man. They were having a grand time for all of eternity past with each other. Why they created man, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Because we know that he created man knowing that man was going to fall and Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together and said, we're going to create this world. We're going to put man on it. Men are going to sin. Are going to, are going to, are going to sin. And Jesus, will you die for them? And Jesus said, yes. Why they decided to create us, why Jesus decided to die for us, I have no idea. Maybe, maybe God will tell us in heaven. I don't know. But you know he did. But they came, and they're very distinct individuals. And we go, well, how do we know they're all God? Jesus accepted worship. One of the problems that the Pharisees and scribes had with him is that people worshipped him. And they go, worship belongs to God. And Jesus said, yes, you're correct. Worship belongs to God. You know, so when people tell you that Jesus was just a good teacher or a good prophet, that can't be true because he accepted worship. And good teachers, good prophets don't allow themselves to be worshipped. You know, we worship the Holy Spirit in times, you know, and he has power. They both have life. They're both, they're, all three of them are eternal. All three of them have power. All three of them receive worship. We need to understand that they are God. And it's, we need to understand that because all the way back in the beginning, it tells us, let us, let us. We saw the Holy Spirit moving on the second verse of Genesis 1-1, and the Spirit moved upon the face of the earth. And then we have the Word. We're told in John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without the Word was nothing created. So Jesus himself, being the Word, was at creation, and, crea and it's the Creator. The Holy Spirit moved upon the face of the earth to bring, bring around this order out of chaos. So we see here him saying, let us. They have been from, connected from eternity. The only time that they were ever broken in their unity was at the cross for us. For a period of time, Jesus was separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. And they were separated from him. And I've shared with you the Father and the Holy Spirit suffered for our 
redemption. They had to break fellowship with part of themselves. That is the worst part. I mean, we talk about how bad the cross was, and it was bad. Don't get me wrong. The cross was physically bad. There was great pain in the cross. There was great suffering in the cross. But the worst part that Jesus went through was when the Father was separated from him. That is when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had become sin. He took all of the sin of the world upon himself. He took all the punishment for sin upon himself. And this is something that is so critical for us to understand the pain that the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit w went through. They are completely unified. They are, they are not three separate roles. They are not three separate gods. They are one. Why do I stress this? Because that is one of the things that makes Christianity, Christianity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all part of that. Now, will we fully understand it? No, nope. could, we could spend a week or two going through every single verse about the Trinity, and all I can do is prove to you that the Bible talks about the Trinity. And the Bible talks about there being only one God, and it talks about all of them having power. They're all being worshipped. And so we have to come up with the idea that the Trinity is true, even though we're never going to understand it. And we can get, we get the slight picture. You know, family is probably our closest picture when it's made correctly. We have a father, mother, and the children, and we consider them one family. All right? But that's an imperfect picture because it's not, we can break that up, and eventually we expect our kids to move out. They're supposed to be moving out if they're doing what they're, they're doing. Uh, are you doing okay over there? Uh, we expect the kids to move out and, and leave and make their own families. So we don't expect God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to ever separate and move apart from each other because they won't. So all of our pictures are slightly warped because we live in a fallen world. Even in a husband and wife situation, those two are never supposed to get separated, and yet in our fallen world, more often than, than should happen, they are broken apart. And consequences happen from that breaking apart. So we want to keep this in mind on where he is. And then we look at this very interesting thing. He says, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Man learned of evil by disobeying God. Now, did God understand evil before that? Obviously he did because he is righteous and holy and perfect. Because he is righteous, holy, and perfect, he can understand anything that is not righteous, holy, and perfect. It's pretty easy, and we had a, had a statement up for, for a full month up there one time, that it's easy to recognize a lie when you know the truth. But the truth becomes very hard to recognize if all you know is lies. All right? Because God is true, he is holy, he is just, he knows evil when it's in his existence. We're told that when the Treasury Department teaches their agents to be able to find counterfeits, all they do is they handle the real stuff. They're told what is supposed to be there and everything, but they're not really told how to necessarily identify the counterfeits, but because all they know is the true, when they touch, when they see the wrong and the counterfeit, it all of a sudden triggers something subconsciously that says it's not true. 
This should be the way it is for us. And I challenge people and I, and I encourage you, listen to Christian radio, listen to these different channels and things. But I also, if you know, tell you, pay attention to what you're being taught there and listen to the Holy Spirit. Because I can tell you many times, I'll have these channels on and sometimes good teachers will say dumb things. Good teachers will say something that's not biblical and all of a sudden, I'm listening and all of a sudden something will go in. What did that person just say? And I'll start really paying attention. I'm going, oh, I've got to be careful now. They're, they're treading an area that is not legitimate. How do I know that? Because I spend so much time in the truth that I know when the lie happens. And I want you all to get the same way. And I've shared with you, I want everybody in our church to be very good Bereans. Look at the word. Study the word. Am I going to purposely teach something wrong? I have no plans to ever teach something purposely wrong. Will I teach something wrong? Unfortunately, probably. If I do, I want you to go look it up in the Bible, find out that it's wrong, and let me know. If you're going to do that, make sure you tell me when the Bible where it's at, and, you know, and, and if I agree with you, we'll agree, and if we don't agree, that'll be fine too, or, because I know why I believe what I believe, and, and if there has a difference of opinion, I don't expect to have anybody here who's an exact copy of me in every belief. Why? Because that would scare me. If everybody's believing just because I believe, I, it's not what I want. I want people to know what you believe and why you believe it. Because I have lots of things that I don't believe the way the mainstream Christianity necessarily believes on, on certain topics, not salvation topics. If you don't agree that the word of God is God's word, then we've got a problem. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, we've got a problem. If you don't believe that he died for all the sins of the world, we've got a problem. Outside of those three things, there's not much. I'm going to argue and put a flag on the top of the hill and say, I'm going to die over this, this argument. Now, I know many Christians that will. They'll, they'll argue to death on some things that are very unimportant. Now, I believe everything that I believe on is important. But I also know that there are certain things that aren't going to be salvation issues. Right? So we want to keep this in mind. The Trinity is something that's important. It's, very, it's taught in the scripture. If you don't want to believe it, you can still go to heaven. I don't know how you're going to go to heaven because God has to die for you to be able to pay your debt. But, you know, but it would be something that is not quite as important. But I'm going to tell you, if you don't believe it, you're, you're going to have to prove to me from the Bible why you don't believe it. You know, if you don't agree with me, that's fine. Tell me why you believe what you believe. And some of you have had that experience. You come and tell me, this is what I believe. And, and you share me with your verses. And I'm going, well, I don't necessarily agree with that. But you, you stand on it because I can't see the hell you, where, where it's wrong on that. We know we sin. If anybody tries to say that we're not sinners, they're a liar. And that's what James says. Is if you say you have not sinned, you're a liar. We have all sinned. People sin from the moment they're born. They're sinners. Those little innocent babies are very selfish things. They want what they want when they want it, and they want it now. They are extremely selfish because the sin nature is already there. Now, are they consciously aware of that? Not at that time. They very quickly become aware of it. I can't tell you how many of my kids and even my, my littlest brother that when we told them no not to do something, we'd watch them reach out and look to see if anybody was looking and they would reach out to go do what they were just told not to do. At that point, it's becoming conscious. We sin because we are sinners. And we need to keep that in mind. And God says, man now knows evil. And then he said, we need to keep them from the tree of life. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Do you realize what a merciful action that was for us to be kept away from the tree of life with sin? I'm going to ask you how many times, you know, and I'm going to look for hands or anything, but think about this. What have you done or seen in somebody else that had such a result that was going to affect them for the rest of their life? What would that be like if they had eternal life having to live under that guilt? What a blessing that God did by saying you're not going to reach out and have eternal physical life. His mercy came along. And we talked about this. When Adam and Eve fell, can you imagine what the rest of their life was like? Every time they saw something go wrong in this world, they would be saying, it's our fault. Now, it's bad enough that sometimes we blame ourselves for things that aren't our fault. But, you know, there's lots of things that for all of us parents, we have raised our kids in such a way that there are a lot of things they do that is our fault. Adam and Eve, everything that was sinful and wrong, knew that it was their fault. And they had to live over 900 years knowing that all the sin, all the violence, all the misdeeds going on in this world was laid at their feet. What would it have been like if they had reached out and touched the tree of life and had to have spent life physically that way without being glorified, without being redeemed? One of the greatest gifts God does give us is physical death because of our sin. And this is something that he gave that mercy and he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. No temptation now reached and touched the tree of life. And to make sure they didn't come back, he put in cherubim, angels, to guard the tree of life and say man cannot get there. Now where's the tree of life at this point? At best, it's in heaven, because we know the tree of life is in heaven according to Revelation. I don't know if it's the same tree of life or not. But it is no longer on this world. People go, well, where's Eden? Don't think it exists anymore. There was this great big thing called Noah's Flood that changed the face of the world. Wherever the Garden of Eden is, we don't know. And I don't think it's ever going to be found because it was totally wiped out by the flood, in my opinion. So there's no use even going to look for it. So we look at this and say, God, you've taken away that temptation. Now, there is a paradise to come. Right? The millennial kingdom will be as close to the earthly paradise as, as Garden of Eden was, but it'll still be sin. But we're told that people will live a, a much longer life where the scriptures tell us that if somebody lives to be 100, they'll be considered a child. Now, that's probably good news as long as there's the blessings that go along with it, and it appears to be the blessings that go along with it. Because the animals will be back to being tame like they're supposed to be. There won't be people being hurt. There'll still be death. There'll still be sin. But Jesus will be reigning with the rod of iron and keeping sin at bay. And then the final temptation at the end of that, when Satan gathers up the people who want to rebel against God. And why, is, why does God give us the millennial kingdom? It's the last argument of man that if we just had the right environment, we'd be, we'd be good. Well, Adam and Eve already proved that that's a lie. But Jesus says, okay, we'll give you one more chance and give you a perfect, you know, give you a good environment where everything's going to go good and you'll still rebel. And man will still rebel against God. 
and they will go to fight God and be done. And then God will destroy everything and bring everything to the white throne judgment. This is the important thing for us. God has a plan for our salvation and his mercy allows us freedom. Do you realize what mercy means to us? When we sin, we deserve death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In God's mercy, when we sin, he does not immediately strike us dead. Because if he struck us dead on our very first sin, we would never have a chance to repent. We would never have a chance to come to Jesus and get saved. God's mercy, not giving us what we deserve. And how merciful is he? Many of us have asked God, why is that person still having chances? And having just said that, many of us are probably thinking back to somebody we know that is still getting chances that doesn't deserve them. God's mercy. God is so merciful. He keeps letting people have chance after chance after chance to turn to him. We need to be very careful that we're not judging those people or condemning them. We need to reach out God's love to them because we're not their judge. Even if they don't deserve anything good, we're not their judge. God is their judge. Our job is to love them and give them the gospel message. We don't do it very perfectly, and unfortunately in most cases, but our job is to love and show them God's love. And let God, because they're going to stand before God at some point. We as Christians stand before Jesus at the Bema seat to have our good works judged. The lost world will stand before God and have not their sins judged, their good works. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64 that all our righteousness is filthy rags. In Isaiah 53, it tells us that God will declare your good works and your righteousness and it will be of no profit. People will go before him and they're going to say, well, let me, well, let me think about all the things God, I've done right. And God said, okay, here's your good things that you've done right. Not enough, goodbye. God will declare all their righteousness and their, and their goodness and he'll say it will not profit. When people are trying to live a good life to earn their salvation, it's never good enough because God's standard is perfection. What is the only thing that gets into heaven? The righteousness of Christ. And when we turn to Christ and we accept him as our Lord and Savior, God's righteousness is put on us so that now when we stand before him, he declares his son's righteousness over us and says, welcome into the kingdom. If we're trying to stand in our own righteousness, he says, not enough. Not good enough. When I witness to people and they go, well, I hope I get to heaven, I go, why? Well, I'm hoping I'm good enough, and I go, you're not. Just plain and simple, you are not good enough on your own to get to heaven. I'm not good enough to get to heaven on my own. Whoever you think the best person in the world that you, that you can think of is not good enough to get to heaven on their own. Jesus is the only one that has lived that would, would have been good enough to get to heaven on his own, and he took all of our sin upon himself so that we could have his righteousness. This is the value of what is going on in our life. You know, now, once we're in Christ, he makes us a new creation. He starts showing us how wicked we really are, and yet he's changing our hearts. 
And he will keep revealing how wicked we are, even though he, he's changing our heart and giving us a new heart. He will keep making sure that we understand that we're not perfect. And if you think you're perfect, you're deceiving yourself. Because the closer and closer I seem to think I'm getting, God will keep showing me all the garbage that's in my heart and saying, see, you've got still things to work on. And he does this with everybody. No matter how good you think somebody might be, if they're truly one of God's, they know that they are not perfect. This keeps us from becoming self-righteous. This keeps us from judging somebody else because if I know that I've got problems in my life, how can I judge somebody else? I really cannot and still say I'm following and listening to God. Why? Because we all have problems. We all have sins that beset us that we have just a hard time getting over. Now that's not to give us an excuse to say, God, it's just something I can't get over. And God says, of course you can't get over it. It takes my power to get over it. We need to totally surrender to God. Every part of our life needs to be surrendered to God. It will take us a long time to surrender every part of our life to God, and we won't be finished when we die. But the good news is God will give us a glorified, perfectly surrendered body at that point. Until then, he's going to keep showing us things to get out of our life and keep us humble before him so that we don't get self-righteous. We don't get, well, I got there. Why aren't you? We have enough people to do that anyway. I got rid of that problem. How come you're not problem having that problem? And, you know, of course, they're looking at you and saying, well, I don't have this problem that you have, you know, but you know, we can battle on that all day long. We're not to be comparing ourselves one to another. We're not to judge one another. God is the only judge. Now, we can look at fruit and say somebody's not living like Christ, but we need to be looking at our own self. Am I living like Christ? Am I being more like Christ with each passing day? And that should be our big judgment. Do I know that I'm saved? Do you know that you're saved? We are to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, not critically, not like we could lose it, but do you realize that when you get saved, you are born again. You are a new creation. And my question for each person in here is, do you remember the day that you became a new creation? A new person. When I got saved, I know that I became a new creature. I have no doubt about it. Because God changed me in many ways immediately. What has he changed in your life? Is he your Lord and your Savior? And has he changed it? Because you could be a good person. You can say the prayer, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe, I believe that I deserve punishment. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But if you do not confess, number one, and we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, what is confession? To agree with God that my sin is sin. Not I made a mistake. Not I just found myself someplace. God, I, you know, you know, God it was just something somewhat bad. No. We say, God, I am a sinner. What I am doing is sin. I confess. Say the same thing as. Then I believe in Christ. Put my whole trust in him. I can say I believe in, in Jesus all the time. What is James told us? The devils believe. You say you believe in God, Jesus is God, you do well. The devils believe. They know the fact. But it's more than just knowing the fact. It is putting your full trust in Jesus. 
There is no other plan B. There is no other option. If Jesus is not our Savior, is not our Lord, we are lost. All right? And I totally, totally believe that when I die, if for some reason it's false, then I have no other plan B. But you know what? The good news is God has blessed me on this world. He has given me peace that passes understanding. He has lifted the sins off my, off my back. He has changed my life. I know that he is true, so I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's got me for eternity. What gets me are the people that say, well, I'm trusting Jesus for eternity, and they don't trust him now. If you don't trust him now, I'm not sure that you're saved. I'm not your judge, but if you don't trust him now, how can you say you trust him? You're going to trust him for future and not trust him for now? I want to get as much practice as I can trusting him now because I know he's got my future. This is important for us. Do we trust him? When he says to do something, are we ready to follow what he tells us to do? Are we ready to surrender our lives completely to him? A surrendered life is so important. And if you've surrendered your life to God, you know it. There's not even a question in your mind that your life is surrendered to God. God, what you say I will do, what you want I will do to the best of my ability through your strength, and you have changed me, and I'm going to follow you. If there are any doubts in your mind that God has changed you, get right with God. Get right with God. If there's doubts in your mind or you say, then you need to get that taken care of. Because so many people have lived in the hypocrisy of doing good works all their life and dying in their sins. There are people that spend their entire life in church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, come to all the revivals, read their Bibles, and pray to the ceiling, and don't know God because they're doing nothing but good works and not putting their trust in him. They're putting their trust in their good works. Good works will not get us to heaven. When he has come in and he has changed you and you're surrendered, you will start doing good works. But you're not doing it to please God. You're doing it because he is changing who you are to be more like him, and you will do good works. This is something that's really been on my heart because I've been listening to different testimonies and different people who claim to be Christians but don't have a surrendered life. Don't have a surrendered life. And I don't want to see anybody hearing Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they thought that their good works were enough. And that's what they told Jesus. Jesus, didn't we feed the poor? Didn't we go and uh, clothe the homeless, uh, naked and, and give, give uh, shelter to the homeless and go to the prisons? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Good works will not get us to heaven. Even if we do them in the name of Jesus, if we, don't, if we don't know him, it's not enough. We need to make sure we know him. When you get saved, you know that you are saved. There are certain people in this church, I know from what I see in God changing people that I'm pretty sure you're saved. But you know, the key for this is where are we with God? You know. You know where you are with God. If you're facing doubts, you need to correct, get those doubts taken care of. God, do I really know you? Is there a time where you came into my life? Because if he came into your life and he crucified your flesh and he's dwelling in you, you will change. And it won't be you making the change. 
This is the good news, and we all know this. When we surrender to God, it's God that changes us. I am no longer trying to be good. God is making me become good because he is killing the flesh and bringing out the right things. Now, that doesn't mean I go out and purposely do things wrong, but it does mean that the true change is God changing me. God changing you. Do you know God this way? Is he truly in you enough to make you his child and changing you to be like him? If you don't know him that way, confess your sin to him and say, God, I don't know you that way. I want to trust you in that way. Come into my life. And then watch him change you. Watch him change you. Because I don't want to see anybody that I've been teaching ever stand before God and God saying, depart from me, I didn't know you. I never knew you. Our job is to get to know him and him to know us and to indwell on us. In Revelation 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens his door, I will come in and sup with him. That message, we use it as a salvation message, but that was Jesus talking to the church. Church, open the door so that I can come in. Have you opened the door so that Jesus can live in you and change you? Only you know that. If you haven't, do so. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this. Lord, if there's anybody listening on this this, uh, message that doesn't know you, Lord, we ask that they will today recognize that you are God, that you are the only way to heaven. Lord, we ask that they will today just say, Lord, I am a sinner. I deserve the punishment. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Come into my life and save me and believe that. Lord, for those of who, who are saved, Lord, we ask you to, we allow you to work more and more in crucifying our flesh and more and more coming forward and, and seeking us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.